You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the director of The Devil All the Time, Antonio Campos, and Daniel Howitt's interview with the cinematographer, Lo Crawley. Happy birthday, Arvin. Happy birthday, honey. Happy birthday to you. Well, this was your daddy's. Brought back from the war. It's time to pass it on. It's the best present I ever got. Thank you. How and why people from two points on a map without even a straight line between them can be connected is at the heart of our story and knock them stiff. You ever think about how we ended up orphans living in the same house? I know what my daddy did. Some people would say it's just dumb luck. You take pictures? I do. I see a smile pretty enough to photograph, that is. Others would tell you it was God's plan. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That ain't no preacher. He's as bad as they got on today. All right, this is Matt Neglia with Next Best Picture. I'm being joined today by the co-writer and director of the new Netflix film, Antonio Campos. Antonio, how are you today? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, considering the circumstances that 2020 has given us with COVID and everything yep. else, I'm doing well. Yeah. Good, <laughs> uh, good, good. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, first start off by giving you a quick bit of background, actually, on uh, myself about something. I was brought up uh, a Catholic. I went to Catholic school my entire life, pretty much, all the way up until college. Uh, so religion was really, okay. really thrust upon me. And I was just curious yeah. to know, was it the same for you growing up? Like, what kind of an impact did religion play into your life? Because, you know, you got to admit, as you get older, you start questioning some things. Yeah, um, it's really interesting that you ask that. Um so I was raised Catholic. Uh, my mother and her father, my grandfather, were very devout um, uh, a Catholic, uh, you know, uh, devout. Uh, <clears throat> they were very devout. And so I was raised uh, with them as a as a model, but I was also raised by my father who uh, had gone to Catholic school like you, like his whole life had gone to Catholic school. And by the time that I was around had decided I'd been to church enough and he wouldn't like go to church and he wouldn't, he never really engaged in any sort of religious conversation, you know? And so I had these two examples and, you know, uh, devout, um, religious people but I also like I didn't get confirmed and so I like there's there's there were like gaps in my my um catholic experience you know what I mean and so yeah. th there was like there were there was like there was an aspect of that that I also didn't have so I, I had like this 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 strange um in and out like kind of a push and pull kind of relationship with it and I and I remember at some point I started to like really notice things that the Catholic church was doing that didn't, that just, just like, this is wrong. Like that, you know, the organization 
felt different than what the message of Catholicism was. And I mm-hmm. started thinking about that a lot. And, and sort of the, and so that was my relationship with it. I, I, I've, I've struggled with, it. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've used my, my work to try and explore a little bit of that. Yeah. There's a reason why I wanted to open up actually with that question is because I, I think it informs so much the approach that uh, this story uh, took, even though it is based on the 2011 novel to me uh, with this pattern of violence and it being passed down the same way that religion is passed down generation to generation. It, it struck me almost as uh, like an angry film, a, con- a condemnation, if you will, towards religion. Uh, what 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 would you say is like your approach uh, towards it today? Uh, my approach towards religion. Yeah, I I, I don't have a, a strong relationship with religion. I have a, a spiritual side, um, and I I I live in a kind of in a constant state of of questioning. And I feel like that for me is. Um, is kind of just a natural place to be in a, in a state of questioning and, and, and looking for an answer. And, and, um, I, 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 sometimes I, I just, it's hard for me to, I embrace the questioning. I, I don't fight it. I think that, you know, the film, the film is trying to condemn those that abuse their powers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, those in, 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 in positions of power in, 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 in the church that abuse that power and, and people that take religion, whatever it may be to the extreme and acknowledging the, 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 the place that religion has, uh, the healthy place that it has for, for certain characters in the story as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, your brother, I, I was looking uh, him up on, uh, on, on uh, IMDB and I didn't see uh, any credit other than the co-written credit here. Um, and I was curious to know, like, what was that collaboration process like in adapting the novel uh, and working alongside uh, Paulo? My, my brother had never written a script before, so this was the first script he'd written. And he had he'd written prose, like short stories. He'd written a novel; he hasn't published it. But he and I love this kind of literature. We both love Flannery O'Connor, like we love Jim Thompson, and this book to us was this amazing hybrid of the kind of stories that we really loved and my brother much like you went to catholic school his whole life so he has a very particular specific relationship with religion too mm-hmm. um and so we were both drawn to the material for similar reasons and the process was very collaborative you know uh the process was really kind of first figuring out what what aspects of each storyline, each character we really loved. And then, and then figuring out what the in and out of each story was and what we just had to cut from the book and then shaping the sort of bigger narrative around that. And then Don was really a big part of, of the sound of the narrator. I mean, it was his voice. Mm -hmm. And, and so, and he was like, a, a lot of the narration is pulled from the book. A lot of it is made up. And then, over the course of editing, we would get, a, my wife is the editor and, and, and we would get ideas of a place here or there that we needed a voiceover. And, and then we would write something, we'd send it to Don, Don would record it right away, send it back and sometimes do an alt version. And, and so that was a really great collaborative process. And, and, and through that process, Don got, became more and more comfortable 
sort of as a performer, you know, as a yeah. narrator. Yeah, the voice of God over the film, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love that you brought up your wife as well. I had a, another question lined up uh, regarding uh, working alongside her, but it sounds to me like this was a really personal uh, project for you and getting these uh, people uh, involved and also having it tied to a very uh, specific and very personal um, aspect of people's lives. You know, you've said before that you're drawn to dark characters or otherwise complicated people, if you will. Mm-hmm. and that's not what I think of when I think of Tom Holland. I think of MCU Spider-Man right off the top of my head, and I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. So what did you see in Tom that told you, yeah, he's going to be he's going to be right for this role? I just saw a really great actor. I just saw a really, a really talented guy who, who had this kind of just it's like a little bit of a scrappy quality. Like I could I could see this kind of like he was, he was, he was, he's, he's got a kind of that, that aspect of Arvin that's kind of like just, uh, just tough. And you, you believe that he kind of like, you know, in, in a fight, even if he was like a foot shorter than the other people could still come out on top. Like he'd, mm-hmm. he'd figure out there was that aspect of it. There was a physicality. And I also just, I just saw this, this, uh, young guy who was very thoughtful and, uh, was just, just kind of just interested in, in going to this place. And for me, so much of like casting is, is, is instinctual. It's like, if someone feels right for a role, follow that, that, that instinct. And yep. Tom just felt for and he was, and you know, and I'm very lucky that he was, he was, he was into it. They say majority of a director's job is, ca- is done once the film is cast and the rest yeah, kind of hopefully really, falls into really, place. It's, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's really true. Yep. You cast the film correctly. It's kind of like you're halfway there. Mm-hmm. This is, um, I would argue, uh, the biggest film that you've done yet uh, in terms of the sprawling cast, the location mm-hmm. shooting, everything that went into it. And so uh, I'm curious to know, you had a couple of uh, very big names on this one as well. Uh, not not just Tom Holland, but also uh, Pattinson, Sebastian Stand, uh, Riley Keough. You know, there's a lot of great talent involved in this. And I'm curious to know, after going through the experience of working on The Devil all the time, are you curious to keep on pushing the limit and seeing how high the ceiling really goes in terms of how big your films can get? Uh, yeah, yeah. The The career that I would like to have as a director mm-hmm. uh, and that I've been, you know, uh, um, the kind of directors that I admire are, are ones that are not... Um, uh, pigeonholed into making an, any one kind of movie or any one genre. And that can go from making, you know, a hundred million dollar tentpole film to making, you know, a, a million dollar um, indie. And I think that, you know, I, I love the idea of just kind of following, following my God and, and seeing where, uh, seeing, seeing, seeing where, you know, inspiration takes me. And so, yeah, like I, 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 I definitely have this at the moment. My, my ambition is, uh, has gotten bigger and my desire to uh, work on a bigger canvas is, is, is um, you know, that's, that's there. So, you know, that's, that's, that's where I'm at right now. I, I would love to just to keep sort of creating bigger worlds and, and working with, um, it's not necessarily about working with a lot of big actors. I just, I just like working with really talented people sure um and who uh, doesn't <laughs> right yeah, exactly it's like 
It's just like at the bottom, at the end of the day, it's like, I, I never really, I, you know, I know there's a lot of guys, guys and a- actors and actresses in this movie that are very famous, but I, I honestly don't ever think about that. Um, mm-hmm. I think about just like the person that's in front of me and, uh, and, 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 the, and the role they're playing. It definitely helps uh, get a film made though. So, yeah, so totally. It, and it helps get a film seen. So, I mean, you've got part of the system. Yep. I mean, yeah. you've got Batman, you've got Spider-Man, the winter soldier at one point, Captain America was also attached at one time or another, who knows yeah. what doors could possibly open up for Antonio Campos in the future. I'm sure that a lot of conversations were had <laughs> in any event though. Um, you've now worked with Netflix on Punisher homemade, now this, uh, can you talk to us a bit about what it's been like uh, working with Netflix on various different types of projects? It's always been really positive. I mean, on the first time was probably The Punisher, where it was Marvel and um, Netflix. It, you know, I was only experiencing that as a you know a, a visiting guest director. So that was that that experience I saw from the outside. I watched Steve Lightfoot, the show creator, how he. Um, how he how he was dealing with with Marvel and, and Netflix and they were super supportive of him as a creator and um, and they were and, and my my small interactions with them uh, on on that show were were very positive and very supportive and that's continued to be the case like this was a really great experience for me in terms of uh, creatively working with the studio I felt like I was supported I felt like I was heard. I felt that they, you know, even they, 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 we might've had disagreements, but there was always like really good conversation and dialogue. And, and we always ended up in a place that was, um, uh, better, you know, than, than mm-hmm. we started. So it's, it's great. I, th- I can't really think of another, so just like super filmmaker friendly. Um, yeah. and they really like sort of pushing the envelope. Great. Last question, and it, hopefully it's an easy one right before we go here. We didn't really talk about any spoilers on this. So I'm really, really happy about that. So for those that are listening to this prior to watching The Devil All the Time, what is a message that you would like to tell someone uh, before they watch your movie, like what they, what you want them to keep in mind or something you want them to take away from it? Uh, I'd love to tell them that don't worry. It's all going to make sense in the end. <laughs> uh, just enjoy the ride. And and allow um, allow the experience to surprise you, uh, and don't try and predict to where it's going to go. I love it. Thank you, Antonio, very very much. Uh, the Devil All the Time on Netflix on September sixteenth. Thank you Thank so much you. for your time today. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Man. All right. Take care. When people look back on it, they had no other choice. There's a lot of no good sons of bitches out there. Excuse me, preacher. You got time for a sinner. You know, I studied something. It's called the delusion. A belief that is untrue. It is our delusion that lead us to sin. Some people were born just so they could be buried. What I'm about to do, I do because I have to.
not because I want to. Thank you so much for, for your time today, Lowell, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the devil all the time. Oh, likewise. Thank you. So first, I would just love to hear how you came to work on this project. What attracted you to the film? Um, well, I, uh, I first met Antonio. I was just, um, we have a mutual friend in uh, director, uh, Brady Corbet, and I was just uh, finishing shooting Vox Lux, and I, I'd met Antonio at various festivals in the past. And um, yeah, so I sort of I uh, I sort of met him again at the end of that movie, and then um, a couple of months later, I was sent this uh, sent the script for it. You know, yeah, you know, like it just immediately I was just taken with the with the with the cast of you know compelling and bizarre characters, you know, and a time scale that goes from the end of World War Two through to the sort of late 1960s, you know, yeah, um, and, and these kind of tormented tormented characters and you know and i guess the the act of kind of like uh their relationships with religion and the idea of sort of salvation and the idea of uh you know um that idea of kind of like uh the the idea that redemption is kind of accessible only through agony mm. <laughs> that's yeah feeling yeah um you know and and the sort of multi-stranded narrative yeah, I, I was really, com- I, I found it really compelling. We're we're going to be talking to Antonio later this week. We're excited to hear from him as well. And and this, like you said, this was your first time working with him. What was that working relationship like? Oh, it's terrific. I mean, he's, you know, he's an incredibly, I mean, he's everything you hope for in the sense that, he, like, he's incredibly collaborative. He's uh, incredibly focused. Um, you know, he really is, the, you know, the, a, a great director to collaborate with. He, he gets great performances, um, a great sense of humor, you know, just, um, yeah, uh, it's, you know, going into anything like this, it's a lot, of, it's a long time. It's a, it's a big commitment, um, shooting any, any movie. And you really want to just be in a position where a director really knows what it is they want. They know the, yeah. the film they're trying to make. But they also give, you know, they're not dictatorial. They're hopefully they've got the heads of department on board that um, that sort of understand the film that he's trying to make and run with it. You know, so you have a, a, a huge amount of creative freedom um, as long as it sort of exists within the, the, you know, obviously the world that he's trying to create. Yeah. That's great. And like you said, this, this film definitely spans a long period of time, huge um, ensemble, lots of, lots of very dark characters. Um, did, did yeah. With such a long uh, time span and shooting so many storylines, how did that affect the way that you approached the visual style of the film? Well, I think, you know, I think one thing that we were very conscious of early on was that if, we didn't want the film to feel sort of disparate, you know, and to it needed to, a, a, a sort of co- cohesive whole. Yeah. But at the same time, it also needed to be able to progress and develop and have these different time frames, you know. So, you know, we spoke about, you know, there's, there's, there's many differences or sort of contrasts in the film. One is that there's a chronological um, the chronological aspect and mm-hmm. the fact that it takes place over these over several decades. There's also the kind of rural environments and the the not that we ever explore the big cities, but certainly more of the towns. Um, so you know, visually we, you know, we looked at the work of Andrew Wyeth um, mm. quite a bit. Yeah. Um, he was 
a big influence in. And in fact, there's one there's one image where we see the church, the rural church, that very much is a kind of um, feels a bit like uh, uh, was informed by sort of Christina's world, the painting of Christina's world. Mm. Um, so, so you know, so that, so so I think the the sort of browner um, tones. Uh, and the palette within and the compositions of course within Wyatt's work we use that to sort of contrast with a, a stronger sense of modernity in, and you know the work of, of someone like William Eggleston and those early American photographers yeah. um, was important to us you know so so immediately you know that what that means is you've got um, you know we looked at photographers like uh, Walker Evans Builder Levi, or Builder Levy, um, uh, Robert Frank, Dorothea Lang, you know, all these, all these sort of documentarians that were capturing what it was like to exist in across America, you know, um, largely, largely on the breadline, you know, in the 40s and 40s, 50s. And then cost, contrasting that, like I say, with the kind of rise of color photography. Yeah. Um, still documentarian, still you know, documentarian in their approach, but, you know, people like William Eggleston, you know, so that, and that rise of the ectochrome. So then you have a contrast between the kind of more organic, uh, natural colors contrasting with more kind of like harsher vinyls and plastics mm. and, and, and in the clothing, you know, more of a sort of, uh, um, more of an artificial color palette for some of those things. So, yeah, that that was kind of a lot of our basis. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And is it true that you that you shot the movie on thirty five millimeter? Yeah, we did. Um, that was something that uh, when I came to the project, it was a it was a discussion that had already been had. Okay. But Netflix were um, incredibly um, supportive and open to that, and um, yeah, it was never even in question. It's just that's that's what Antonio wanted. If it ever came up, I think it was just you know, reiterated how important it was to shoot this period film on 35. Um, I, you know, I personally, it's, it's still my favorite format shooting mm. film of a digital. Um, and I think especially for this, it's so, you know, a, a film doesn't pick up on every single pore. It doesn't pick up on every single uh, thread in the fabric. You know, it doesn't need to. It's not films that, you know, 35 mil cellular quality is not about seeing how many pixels you can yeah you know uh, you know and and, and and trying to strive to be 6k 8k upwards <laughs> like that's and that's not really what interests me about cinematography either you know and um so i really think film was the was medium for this one you've watched them in unforgettable adventures love affairs and tragedies now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.
Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Like you, like you already said, so much of this film takes place, you know, in backwoods, backwoods of Ohio and these really rural locations. Um, how did how did the locations that you shot in and and maybe the weather because a lot of the film does take place outdoors how did, how did those things uh, affect the shoot? Well, I mean, phot- photographically, it was you know it was tough. It's tough trying to shoot a scene that that you know takes place over a scene takes place over maybe an hour or mm-hmm. two, or an hour and a half, and you're trying to shoot it like over two days. You know, right. like at some point you have to to commit to what the the weather is telling you and what the look of the scene is. And then if you come back after lunch and it's completely overcast or vice versa, it's, um, it's a real challenge, you know, and, um, it's honest, there's not a great deal you can do about that. You know, um, you've got, you know, you've got large areas that you're working with. You sort of, uh, up in the woods shooting like 360 degrees. You need to be able to move quickly. Um, you just have to do your best and lean into that. But it's certainly the biggest challenge of the film, I would say. Yeah. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask was what, what what was there any sequence that was particularly challenging for you to shoot? Yeah, I think um I think just with with that in mind there's a there's a, the the you know the final scene with mm-hmm. um the final scene with Bodecker and uh and Arvin which is which is uh, Tom Tom Holland's character. Yeah. Um uh, and Sebastian Stan's character. Uh, they have this final shootout, and it was just yeah, it's very tricky to try and make all that stuff match. And it was shot over like two days, so it's um, it wasn't that was the biggest challenge for me, just trying to give some sort of visual continuity to the scene. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, from from a cinematography perspective, how do you how do you manage to take such uh, dark material? A lot of this is is very dark, very dark characters, and um. Uh, disparate actions. How do you, how do you approach it to the, to where the the image isn't isn't so dark? You know, a lot of times it seems like cinematography is trying to get darker and darker and darker. And I, your film wasn't. So how do you, <laughs> you, you you've you've you've, no, you've noticed? I have noticed. So how did you how did you manage to not go down that route, even with dark material? No, I mean, I think there's, I think there's definitely some scenes in. I mean, my my approach, just in terms of like what, you know, I've always been influenced by kind of Harris Davides and, and Gordon Willis and those photographers that were never afraid to go dark in terms of, you know, t- photographically. I'm also somebody who's not afraid to. I'm sort of drawn to the darker side, or or certainly a a more honest examination of human behavior. Um, Anyway, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, there's not a lot of, uh, if any, sort of high-key, highly lit comedies on my on my IMDb page. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Like that's uh, that that you know that's that's what I'm drawn to. Um, but 
so coming back to your question, you know, uh, I, I think there are s- certain scenes that are that are dark photographically. Um, one thing I was that we were very conscious of was that uh, early on, you know, Antonio didn't want the whole movie. Uh, it's sort of like a hat on a hat if you end up making very dark material, uh, literally dark photographically. I think he, Antonio is very conscious of like, in the beginning, it needs to feel hopeful, you know. Um, Willard um, needs to have hope. Uh, his sense of sort of redemption needs to feel positive, you know, like it, it, he may be able to rescue Charlotte, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the season, in, in, you know, even though it's sort of like dark ideas um, and dark approaches and dark solutions to these problems, um, early on it needs to feel hopeful and then it gives us somewhere to go when hope is lost, really. And, um, you know, and then that also is like seasonally, early on in the movie, the prologue is kind of like there's much more green, it's kind of springtime. Yeah. Later on, it's very much kind of like autumn time. And so, and so the kind of that that loss of hope is reflected also in the kind of the season, the scenes, sorry, the seasons that the, each scene is shot. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, but but I'm in, I'm interested about, I'm interested about your your take on cinematography and that things are getting darker and darker. Well, I mean, definitely, it seems like at least in blockbusters these days, um, it seems like the goal is to is to f- literally make the picture dark and shadowy. Uh, and sometimes, it, sometimes yeah. it can work. You know, I, I'm, that's not to say it's always a bad thing. Not everything should be bright, brightly lit by any means. Uh, but sometimes it's a little yeah. on the nose. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if that's coming out of like studios just feeling. You know, there are things films like Arrival or, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, like, you know, like, uh, you know, Bradford's work is, you know, tends to kind of embrace the darkness. And, and, then, and then, you know, like or, or bat, the new trailer for Batman looks sure. pretty dark, you sure. know. Um, you know, and I, I suppose it's like there were movies like Seven, um, yeah. you know, when I was when I was studying, you know, like, you know, 25 years ago or whatever, Seven was a movie that, you know, was like very dark photographically but maybe is it maybe it is, a, it is a thing that you know like the the biggest studios and like marvel movie or whatever is is now in a position where it feels it can it feels like its audience are uh you know they they have a they have a they're assured i suppose they can go dark without losing audiences well, sure sure uh well uh what are some of the things you're most proud of with this film uh with devil all the time what is there anything particularly that you you really uh you really feel like went is just a, an amazing shot or sequence that you really are proud of i think i think the you know the night work uh works very well um i'm i'm really happy with the interiors of carl and sandy's apartment mm. you know and they're sort of like the decline of their uh you know, that sort of descent. Um, yeah. I mean, their relationship has always been incredibly dark. I mean, they're serial killers, but right, right. but it's sort of like, you know, but, but, but uh, yeah, I think there's definitely a kind of like, there's a, a loss of enjoyment or loss of faith in what they're doing mm-hmm. that I think sort of like manifests itself in their, in their apartment. Um, and I think just like, yeah, I always, I'm always quite pleased when I shoot, uh, night scenes and night interiors, especially in rural environments that don't feel, 
especially lit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've always tried to sort of like be quite bold and faithful to what I think that world would feel like. And so, yeah, if I, if I've managed to tread that fine line between a, something that is like, um, unusably underexposed and something that is kind of exciting in, in its darkness, then, then I'm always, especially with film where you, it's not like you see a monitor on set and you know what you're getting. Right. There's still always that danger that you've gone too far with it and, you know, you get your, your dailies back and, um, and there's a, there's a problem. Right. Before I let you go, I'd also, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. I saw that you shot um, Stephen Karam's The Humans, uh, which should be coming out early That's next right. year. Uh, many of my friends here at Next Best Picture right. are very excited for that a- adaptation. Uh, is there anything you can tell me about that project? Um, not not really at the moment, no. I mean, I'm just currently we're cu- currently color timing it. Um, okay. So I, I'm, I, get back, I get back to work on that next week, which is great. Um, no, I mean equally. I'm just super excited to see how it's received. Awesome. Yeah, we are. We're we're very excited to see that. Uh, well, Lowell, thank you so much for your work on this film, and thank you so much for your time. It was great speaking with you. Likewise, you take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the director and co-writer of The Devil All the Time, Antonio Campos, along with Daniel Howitt's interview with the cinematographer, Lowell Crawley, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. The Devil All the Time is currently streaming on Netflix. We will see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.